Welcome back. You're listening to In Situ Science, where we get to hear what science is like behind the scenes. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode, I'm joined by mammologist, physiologist, and soon-to-be tenured academic, Dr. Claire Stowski. Claire, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. No worries. I, I mostly asked you here because I need your advice, and I've always wanted to work on microbats. And I've never managed to make it <laughs> happen. So if, if I'm going to, you know, quit being an entomologist and start working on microbats, what's the big unanswered question that will get me funding? Well, I think one of the um, good avenues to go into, which could work very well for you, is looking at how microbats impact agricultural practices. Oh. So there's been a little bit um, sort of done at the moment in the US, but I, as far as I know, there's not much done in Australia. So it's looking at how, how if microbats actually eat um, target pest species for All agricultural right. practices, and some of the studies in the U.S. are finding that if bat species were to be wiped out, which is kind of happening in the U.S. with the white nose syndrome at the moment, it could actually cost the agricultural industry billions of dollars. So with your knowledge sort of of entomology, you could kind of combine that. <laughs> it happens a lot. People eventually find they have to turn to the dark side and work on things that eat insects yes. instead of the insects themselves. <laughs> I guess that would be the drawback for that project. Yeah. But yeah, so that's... So what, what would you do? I guess you'd do stomach content analyses or something like that? Yeah, you could also do fecal analyses. There's mm. some, I haven't done it myself, but there's some uh, great new techniques on to, to um, analyze the DNA of fecal samples to actually see exactly what insects are being eaten because with just analyzing fecal pellets, you often only just get the hard bits mm. of the insects left and you don't often know some of the moths that are being eaten. Yeah. Um, so that would be yeah one way to figure out what they're what the bats are actually eating. That's that's sort of been my uh, my Achilles heel every time I've tried to do something molecular. It fails disastrously, so I'm afraid to start it up again. Oh, well, I've never actually done any molecular, so... Well, I, yeah. I think it's reaching a point, too, where you don't need to do it anymore. You can yeah. pass it off to someone else and pay them to do it, so maybe I'll do that. But, yeah, yeah, I don't know why microbats. It's just one of those things ever since I was an undergrad. Yeah. I just thought, these are cool, and I'll work on these one day. It never actually took steps to, to make it happen. <laughs> they are very cool. I highly recommend working on them. You mm. kind of, um, I've haven't worked on them much in the past few years, but they have a very big soft spot for microbats. They're very special. Yeah. yeah. So you're a, a mammologist in general. I mean, how did you end up doing stuff on the particular species you've been focusing on? Is it just they happen to be nearby, or? Yeah, I guess it's sort of the species I've always worked on. It's been more so, will they help me answer the questions I'm interested in? Mm. Not really particular species. I actually started out, my first research project was on reptiles, on bearded dragons and Brisbane River turtles. All right. And um, I spoke with my PhD supervisor about what to work on, and he recommended microbats. And that's where my uh, mammal research started. And mm. ever since then, it has been mammals. Um, and the past few years I've been doing a lot of work on small marsupials in Australia mm -hmm. and that was just to sort of a uh, species to help answer questions we're interested in. And the sort of questions you're asking are about how they respond to change or mitigate the effects of change in general, yeah? Yeah, yeah, how they respond to changes in their environment and 
how they cope with it and how they possibly survive or don't survive these changes that happen. What what sort of changes? Uh, So sort of looking at um, climate and environmental changes in general, one of the bigger projects um, I've been involved in the last few years was looking at how uh, animals can cope with fire. Uh, Because not only in Australia, but in the US and even in Europe, there's been... um, increase in the frequency and intensity of fires. Mm. So sort of just looking at if animals can actually survive and if they do, how do they survive these big disastrous fires? Mm. I mean, that's a good question. If you're something like a bat, you, you fly away. Yes. <laughs> what, are, what are the little rodents and stuff do? So, well, they're not quite so fortunate. They don't have the wings of bats, so they mm. can't fly away and they're not as big as kangaroos, which can also escape. So. What we found, a lot of them stay sort of in situ in the area that they are and they can go underground under rock boulders, some of these animals, or some of them, if the fire is not so intense, if they're high enough in a tree, they can survive some of the prescribed burns that national mm. parks sort of implement to prevent the bigger ones. <laughs> um, so they, they do have options available to them. Mm. But I mean, surviving the fire is just... That's just, one thing, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's just the first step. Yeah. Because um, obviously afterwards, um, for many, many months, there is very little food resources and very little vegetative, vegetative cover. Mm. And so a lot of uh, predators can take advantage of the small mammals, mm-hmm. especially in Australia. You've got cats and foxes and wild dogs, mm. uh, which... Um, there's been some studies in the Northern Territory that have found that cats are actually attracted to recently burned areas. Yeah, well, I even remember just being up in the top end and just seeing swarms of birds heading towards the fires yes. and just picking up what's running around after a fire. Yep. <laughs> it's not surprising. Yeah, exactly. So what, what do they do? How do they survive this onslaught? So one of the things that we found, one of the species I focused on were antichinus. So very small marsupial, short-lived, they die after a year. So, you so know, they, they look like mice, really, but they're, they're marsupial mice, right? Yes, okay. marsupial mice. They have a pouch, um, so they reproduce once usually in their life, maybe twice. Oh. And so during their reproductive period, afterwards all the males actually die. Um, and the females live on to wean their young, maybe for a second year to have a second litter. So very much not like mice in that no. way. Yeah, <laughs> they're not so swarms of little things running around. No, no, they're a bit, bit different. Yeah. And because of this interesting reproductive history, they're very, you know, they have to be able to survive things like fires because they have the huge population crash. Mm-hmm. Um, if, you know, if all the females with young were to die during a fire, then it would be very hard for them you know, to repopulate afterwards. Mm-hmm. So we found um, after a prescribed fire and also a wildfire that we managed to look into afterwards that they use a lot of torpor. So they decrease their body temperature and save energy. So, wait, so is torpor just a fancy word for hibernation or what? what? In, in, in a, <laughs> What's the technical definition of torpor? In a way, yes. So I guess the technical definition of torpor is an animal decreases its metabolic rate, which decreases their body temperature. Yeah. And they say, by, via this, they save um, energy and also water. So they're not evaporating water to the environment. Mm-hmm. And so torpor, um, as hibernation is very seasonal. So hibernation means prolonged torpor during winter. Yeah. 
so it, you know you get that very it's it's shown in Australia as well with animals such as echidnas and microbats, but it's sort of your classical hibernation in the northern hemisphere. Mm-hmm. You know, animals hibernate for however many months during winter and then they're active during summer. Mm-hmm. But then we have a lot of animals that use torpor on a day-to-day basis. So they'll um, decrease their body temperature. Say, I'll go back a little bit. If you get sort of a nocturnal animal like an mm-hmm. antichinus, um, they'll run around at night and feed and look for insects to eat and then sort of in the early hours of the morning they let their body temperature drop, their metabolism drop and for about half the day they're inactive. Mm-hmm. Um, they're basically not responsive although they can respond to external stimuli um, but they are saving energy basically. Is it, is it a fancy word for sleep then? What well, <laughs> it's not quite the same in sleep. You're still like, you know, for humans when we're asleep, our body temperature is still warm mm. and a- animals that use torpor also do sleep. So they're functioning at a higher level when they're sleeping. Mm-hmm. Whereas in torpor, everything kind of switches off. All right. um, they're, they're, while they're torpor, they're functioning at the very minimal levels Basically, they're only keeping um, things functioning what they need to function to to still be alive. Yeah. So after something like a fire or a big change, they'll go into this essentially to save energy because there's not a lot of food around and things like that after a fire? Exactly, yeah. So basically, they can um, in, uh, prolong the resources that they have stored in them. So they can prolong their fat by using torpor mm-hmm. and they can also survive off minimal food so they won't have to eat as much yeah. to survive and um, it also helps for things like avoiding predators so the less you have to go out to forage to find this food that might be hard to find the less likely you are to be eaten by a cat for example. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned though that things like fire regimes are changing with climate change yes. does that mean that these little marsupials are in a good position because they can adapt to it? Or what What do we predict here? Well, yes and no. I mean, obviously with very serious extreme fire events, if they're unable to find an, a good place to hide, then they're probably going to die during the fire. But it at least, at least gives them more of an advantage if they do survive the fire afterwards. Mm. There has been some speculation that perhaps this even helped early mammals survive after the meteorite impact um, that killed all the dinosaurs. <laughs> all right. So um, there's a hypothesis that a lot of early mammals were... Um, Heterotherms, so animals that do use torpor quite often, mm-hmm. and so this would have allowed them to survive in a landscape where that was very, very devastated. Yeah. And we do know that a lot of the early mammals did survive in comparison to the large dinosaurs. Mm. Yeah, they're, they're in a much better position than reptiles, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So being a person that's worked on reptiles, but then also fluffy, cute things. Yes. Have you noticed, uh, I guess what we were talking about before, this, these sort of taxonomic biases to particular groups? Because, I mean, in, in a way, we're sort of on opposite ends of a spectrum in that you work on fluffy mammals and I work on insects. Do you ever feel, do you ever have to justify the study species you work on? 
Yes. If that makes sense as a question. (laughs) Yeah, no, I completely understand where you're coming from. And often there is a bias towards mammals, but even within mammals, there is a bias. Like, (laughs) anti-kindness, who cares about anti-kindness? No one really knows much about them. Like, whereas, you know, compared to things like iconic Australian species like your koala or your echidna, you know, those are much more, I guess, um, I don't know the right word, maybe sellable, you know, to, to the public. And so sometimes it is hard to to get people to care about, you know, the little brown rodent mammals <laughs> or rodent-like mammals, sorry. I mean, this is, this is new to me. I've just learnt that this distinction exists. I always thought that I was the underdog because I worked on insects. And a while ago, I got a reviewer's comment back from a behaviour journal where the reviewer just said, isn't this more suited to an entomology journal? Which was totally baseless because it was a pure behavior paper. Had any entomology journal would just turn it away because it's it's nothing insect specific. Yeah. And I, I went on a, a a Twitter rant about <laughs> how stupid this reviewer was, yeah. and I got lots of people coming back to me with their stories about the fact that they find it really hard to get papers published on fish because fish aren't considered you know, proper animals by other fellow scientists and stuff. Well, I completely understand where you're coming from. When we started this fire research, because we're kind of, we're straddling a few different sort of specific fields, like we've got physiology and ecology, and we also have behavior in there. So when we were trying to get this published, a lot of journals were like, this isn't the right fit. But we're like, well, where where does it fit? Because it doesn't (laughs) fit anywhere specifically. So I wonder if journals need to start you know, sort of straddling more sciences and more species as well, I guess. Hopefully an editor would see through that though, right? Yeah, you would you'd hope so. And I mean, we did, <laughs> you know, we did have um, some great publications and we did get them out and everything, but it, it, it was difficult. There mm. does seem to be, in some journals, they do seem to have a bit of, I guess, like... Um, blinders on or something Mm. that they only select specific animals and specific topics yeah yeah i I suppose the insect sort of equivalent is something like fruit flies Mm. if you study something in a fruit fly then people assume that it's applicable to science broadly but if you ask that exact same question in a stick insect they'd go oh well this is a weird niche thing and we can't apply it exactly yes which makes no sense at all yeah. Well, I guess yeah, in the equivalent in mammals, it would be mice or rats, you know, yeah. if you're a lab thing. Or, or, or surely chimpanzees is the, the golden ticket, right? You do anything with chimpanzees and well, you're fine. Definitely for behavioral studies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was doing a survey of uh, sort of publication patterns in behavior journals and looking at the top cited papers over the last 30 years, and I was amazed that a huge chunk of them were just single observations of things in chimpanzees getting hundreds of citations in these big behavior journals and it just sort of blew my mind because I was reading it and going who cares that this chimpanzee poked something with a stick but but it, it sends ripples throughout the animal world for some bizarre reason yeah I've always wondered that there's um I don't know if it's because we're so closely related to them that people mm. are more interested in it, but there's so many fascinating animals out there and so many species that no one's ever worked on. And, you know, I feel like that should get some focus before, you know, they disappear and they're yeah. not there to, 
even study anymore. <laughs> and it's, yeah, the the fact that we have things like fruit flies and lab rats and things like that that are the model mm. systems. They're model systems because they reproduce really fast and are kind of easy to rear in a lab. So in a way, they're almost the exception to lots of rules of life. Yes, and I'm a firm believer that you know you can't replicate in the lab what happens out in the wild you can to a certain extent but you have to you have to study an animal in its natural habitat to yeah. actually know you know how it's going to cope with change and have you have you ever experienced a geographic bias as well working on australian things do people think australia is an exception to rules Definitely, I think so. When I first started um, into my foray into research in torpor and hibernation, it was with bats. And mm. there was sort of a firm belief that, um, you know, microbats outside of the northern temperate areas, they don't hibernate. You know, it's too warm. They've got, always got food <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. And so a lot of people don't realize that, I think, in Australia... There are some places that get very cold. I mean, even yeah. where we are right now in Armadale, you know, <laughs> it gets down to minus temperatures in winter. And, mm. uh, you know, I found that a bat species completely restricted to tropical and subtropical areas does hibernate during winter. Not maybe your technical, you know, classical hibernation of many months, but they'll stay torpid for a week mm. and then arouse when it gets a bit warmer. So there is definitely biases, yes. It's weird because it's almost like the the European temperate region is seen as this baseline of how life should behave. Yes. Even though the diversity there is really low, most things are in the tropics. Yes. Surely it should be the other way around, if anything. I guess because there's such a longer research history in the Northern Hemisphere, perhaps that's why there's that bias. But now, you know, we are getting more from Australia and sort of South Africa, but the tropical region, I don't know if it's the same for insects, but I know for mammals, it's they're very, there's not much done on, research done on uh, tropical mammals at all, sort of around the equator. There's not much known. I've, I've tried doing tropical insect stuff. It's really hard, <laughs> just logistically. Yeah. Well, I, have, I have a colleague who's, um, you know, been doing a bit of tropical mammal research over the last few years, and the logistics that she says she's encountered, so um, a lot in, Mal in Malaysia. Hmm. Was that where you were as yeah, well? Yeah, I did my PhD stuff in Peninsular Malaysia. And... Yeah. Lo would love to do more, but it's almost too hard simply because of the logistics of it. Which is such a shame because I feel like we would find a lot of new stuff there, but I also feel like we would find a lot of similarities as well mm. with um, species, you know, in different latitudes. Mm. Um, but this this is probably something you don't have to worry about soon because you're going to the northern hemisphere. <laughs> yes, well, I'm, I'm, I will definitely um, keep remembering that you know it, it is similar and different in the southern hemisphere. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about this this big journey you're about to go on. Yeah, so I'll be um, uh, starting a position at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology in Trondheim in mm -hmm. Norway. So it will be very different, I think, to uh, someone who's mostly done research in Australia. Yeah. I have done a bit of research in Poland for a few years, yeah. 
but I've been learning all about the Northern Hemisphere mammals and I am quite excited because they do you know they have the big uh, photo period changes like mm. they do experience a lot of extremes there so from a mammal physiologist perspective it is going to be very fascinating is Trondheim that high up it is actually I can't actually tell you what the, <laughs> what the latitude is right now but it it's um, about six hours north of Oslo right by, by car so maybe one of those places where you will just go into human torpor during the winter. <laughs> it's not actually too bad because it is on the coast, so it does right. have sort of the maritime climate. Yeah. Um, so it doesn't get too bad, but there is snow outside the city. Um, and <laughs> yeah. So how long till you head off? Two weeks. All right. How, how's life going? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's. Oh, we're actually uh, not doing too bad. We're, you know, selling things in the house and I've just started packing my office this morning, yeah. which it's hard to decide what to throw away and what to take because, you know, the 30 kilo baggage limit is a bit bit restrictive. Yeah, so you're not card couriering anything over. You really are just moving. We, um, sorry, I did post, I did ship some things, which is on, that's on the ocean somewhere between Australia <laughs> and Norway at the moment. So hopefully it gets there. Yeah. Um, yeah, so did ship a few things. All right. So how did, how did this position come about? How did you find it? Well, there was uh, an advertisement uh, that I saw, uh, would have been almost this time last year, actually, and mm. sort of around September last year. And I sent in my application. Uh, her didn't hear anything probably until January uh, when I was invited for an interview. Right. Which I was very excited about. So they flew you over. Yes, for they, it. Yeah, they flew me over. All right. It was my first visit to Norway ever. <laughs> <laughs> so what's it like then, being put in a position where you suddenly have to decide whether you call Norway home? Uh, it was very stressful when I got the email that they offered me the position. Um, I told my partner, now husband, that mm. uh, I got that I got the offer, and I don't know what to do, and I'm freaking out. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a couple week discussion of you know if I want to move, if he wants to move, if you know if I want to give up my fellowship that I have here mm. um, because it's an amazing opportunity but in the end it was an opportunity that was too good to refuse. In that it's a permanent job you mean? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, a permanent job and also when I was there for my interview um, I got an amazing impression of the people that I'll be that I will be working with mm. shortly and the facilities there are fantastic. Yeah. Um, I will have a really nice lab space and there's a really great physiology group, but there's also a lot of other groups in the, depart in the department that I'm mm. looking forward to collaborating with. And just sort of, I guess, a new adventure. Yeah, I mean, that's a, we, we talk a lot on this podcast about the instability of science yes. and the, the places it takes you. What, what camp are you in? Do you see that as a burden or as an opportunity? I guess both. Mm -hmm. You know, it's to begin with when you are in this like what feels like a never ending cycle of postdocs. Yeah. Um, it can be very stressful when you come to the end of your postdoc and you're trying to find 
your next position, that mm. is a very stressful time. But then when you do get that next position and it's somewhere new, it's it's really I think it's very good because you you get put in a new app in a new environment where you meet new people and I think it helps scientifically because it can open your mind to new questions you would have not thought of if you didn't meet a certain researcher. Mm. Um, so I think it is good to move around early in your career, mm. even though it is stressful. Yeah. And, you know, hopefully I'm very fortunate. I feel very fortunate now that I've kind of got, you know, not an end point, but I can sort of sit comfortably somewhere for a while where I can really establish start establishing my lab group yeah, I guess. Yeah you can do grown-up things like set roots and <laughs> yes. I don't know hang pictures on the wall and you know <laughs> those sorts of little things like thinking about maybe buying property and things like that it's yep, um, having that permanent position changes everything. Yeah and actually like when I when I did my postdoc in Poland I didn't take anything with me because I knew you know I might come back to Australia or who knows this time I actually shipped all my textbooks over because <laughs> they're heavy and I'm like no I'll ship them over because we're going to be there for a, a while. Yeah I mean I did a, it was a four just a four month postdoc in Singapore and I think back on it almost a little bit regretfully that I didn't invest more in it because I didn't feel like I could at the time yes. because I always knew that I was going to go somewhere else after it yep. and, and it's a real shame I always think that I don't know if the offers we got as scientists were better and maybe just a little longer term the travel would be more of an opportunity I, I definitely think it would be more advantageous for everyone involved to at least have two to three years for each postdoc. I think anything less than two years, like mm. you said, you're kind of one foot in and one foot out of the door. You, mm. know, you don't really settle into the position or life in yeah. that city. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, in, in Singapore, because it's such a, a transient place already, I couldn't get a rental property for four months, oh. so I was in and out of Airbnbs for four months living out of a suitcase. Oh. And then nobody there really, uh, yeah, it's not like you get invited into friendship groups or anything because they know you're going to be gone yep. soon anyway. So other people don't invest in you either. And it just makes for a very almost lonely experience that does affect the quality of work that you can do. Yes, I, I completely agree with that. Because, <laughs> I mean, you've already moved around a lot Yes. already. What? Give us a brief history <laughs> of the places you've been. Um, oh, I guess sort of starting from, so my first research was at the University of Queensland in Brisbane. Is, um, is that home? Yeah, Brisbane? so that's where I grew up mostly. Mm -hmm. um, I did have a brief few years in my teenage years living in Indonesia. My father right. works there. Yeah. Um, and then I moved to Armadale for my PhD. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I moved to Poland for a postdoc, mm -hmm. which was about uh, a little under two years. So it, it wasn't too bad. I did get to sort of experience life and I made mm -hmm. some good friends there. Yeah. And then surprisingly moved back to Armadale, which I did not expect after <laughs> my PhD. Um, and I've been here now for four years. So an actual, a very good, good amount of time to yeah. sort of establish friends and colleagues and I've really enjoyed my time back here I'm, yeah. I'm glad I made that decision yeah what what brought you back to Armadale um, a project that my uh, supervisor the fire project actually mm. 
And when he told me about um, about this project, I just thought it was really fascinating and an idea to combine torpor and fire. It just it you know it's not something that you would think would happen in an mm. animal. Like why would you look at torpor? In regards to fire, it's usually associated with cold. Yeah. Um, but when you think more about it, you know the reduction in resources and everything. It made so much sense. And yeah. Yeah. Another good opportunity that I didn't want to miss. Yeah. And can I ask a very personal question about how much of this journey your partner was following you on? Um, so I met him uh, approximately after six months. I came back to Armadale. Oh, okay. So he's been on this journey for uh, almost four years. Yes. Is, is he regretting it now you're moving in Norway? <laughs> <laughs> well, he seems quite excited about it. it Timing-wise, it works out well for him. So he's actually submitting his PhD thesis today, I believe. <laughs> All right. Possibly tomorrow. <laughs> um, so in, in a sense, it's a good time for him to move like he would have he to was be, gonna have to anyway yeah, right? <laughs> he, was, he needs to be finding something so Norway is a good stepping stone because in Europe there's a lot of opportunities mm-hmm. um, and Europe's close by so I think he's excited um, I think both of us are excited and nervous and a lot of different emotions all at once yeah but you, you're not doing things by halves submitting a PhD <laughs> and then moving two weeks later is... no I know I do um, I do feel for him there's been a lot going on in the last few months. So what's he work on? He's a philosopher. Right. So um, completely outside of the realm of science. Yeah. Um, and his thesis is looking at um, sort of false pleasures and sort of also looking at it in modern times with video games. Right. Um, it would take much much too much time for me to explain it and I don't, don't think I'd be able to explain it as well as he could. I'll have to get him on the podcast before you go, that'd be great. Yeah. Oh, well, he's um, yeah, very good to talk to. So. <laughs> so you came back to Armadale on these postdoc fellowships yes. and managed to land a DECRA. Yes. Now, I'm in the process of applying for, for DECRAs and everyone keeps telling me you know, it changes everything for your, your, your career-wise. For people listening to the podcast, we should explain a DECRA is the be-all and end-all of a postdoc fellowship. <laughs> How would you describe a DECRA? Well, I guess definitely in Australia, it's, you know, if you get it as a postdoc, it's very prestigious mm. from what everyone says. Yeah. And um, it's definitely, you know, it it's an amazing thing to get because for three years, you know, it, it's you've won your salary it's your salary and you also get funding for equipment mm. and it's you know it's your own personal stuff to <laughs> to play with <laughs> um, but did you feel like that actually made a difference in getting these permanent positions was that a, a big stake to claim i i personally felt like like when I started applying for jobs and I could put that the DECRA as funding I've gotten mm. on my resume, I felt like it definitely helped. Yeah. Um, to be honest, somewhere outside of Australia, like Norway, um, mm. I don't know how much impact impact it has there, but I'm sure it does because they realise it's you know it's similar to any country where they've got a national um, funding body. Mm. When they see it's from the Australian Research Council, they're probably like, okay, this person can get money from yeah. from our national research body if they've gotten it from that country. Yeah. So I I do feel like it it helps. 
I mean, it feels like it takes a long time to start getting that big competitive research money in Australia and just getting your head around the procedures and politics. Yes. Do you have any idea what the system is like over there and what you're getting yourself into? Um, I've spoken briefly to um, my future colleagues about it, and it sounds like a similar process Mm. in Australia. Um, You know, sort of the once yearly sort of intake process. You write write a grant and put it in. And um, I think there might be a few more different grants there. Like from what I understand, there's some, there's more mid-career, sort of early to mid-career research opportunities over there. Um, Yeah, it's got to be a relief they're not having to fight for salary. Yes, right. <laughs> that I must admit that will be a huge, huge comfort. Yeah, now you can just apply for the actual research money, not for money to pay your bills. Yes, yeah, yeah that, that's very true. <laughs> and the the research side of things, where you are now stepping away from Australia and marsupials and things, is that a is is that an opportunity or is that scary? as well <laughs> um, well a bit of both i mean i have to you know learn about all the species there and yeah. you know where to go to trap them and so it's going to be a big learning process research wise mm. but it does mean that i'll probably get to go to I'll not i mean i could do it here too but i'll probably go back to microbats there all right um to sort of look at them at the very far reaches of their range <laughs> um but there's a lot of cool small mammals there that i'm looking forward to hopefully working with yeah yeah because the last podcast I was talking to Greg Holwell, who just went from Australia to New Zealand when he got his full-time position, but he was a praying mantis person. There's 300 or so species in Australia. Yeah. There's two in New Zealand, <laughs> and one of them is a pest. Yeah. <laughs> it would be similar for a mammal person going to New Zealand. There's like two native mammals there, and they're both bats. <laughs> the rest are all introduced. Yeah. <laughs> New Zealand's fascinating from that perspective. <laughs> I mean, because you're going to Europe, though, where l- there is a much, much longer history of this stuff. Yes. That's kind of different in New Zealand, where not a lot's been done. You almost have free reign. Yes. Are you worried about having to elbow your, in- elbow your way into European um, systems? Not so much, I think, because like, I do know quite a few researchers throughout Europe, and there's a lot of species that, yes, there's been a lot done on, yeah. but there's also quite a lot that, because of um, logistical re- reasons, so like in, in the past, a lot of the transmitters that we use to you know, radio track animals were much too big for a lot of the small species, mm. so there's a lot, whereas now they're a lot smaller, and so it's opened up a lot of species that we can now work on that we couldn't have in the past Mm. and um, I'll definitely get in contact with people I know there to you know collaborate with and which I'm looking forward to yeah but you mentioned that one of the the things that maybe led you to hesitate about the position was not completing the project here yes so, I mean, how long have you been in the Decker Fellowship here? Um, a year and a half, so about halfway through. But in research world, that's kind of just starting, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, there's definitely... I've managed to get 
I'm actually sort of on track with what I was hoping to accomplish yeah. by halfway through. Yeah. Um, so I, I got, I've got a decent amount of data, which I have not had time to look into <laughs> because of moving. Yeah. But so basically, since I found out about getting this position, I've and accepting it, I've focused on just getting the data. Yeah. Um, there is a new postdoc in our lab, though, who is going to continue work on the species I've been working on and may even sort of incorporate some of my project into it as well. Mm. So it, it won't hopefully just die in the water, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's also a, a downside of the system. Well, analyses, there's mm. some, I haven't done it myself, but there's some uh, great new techniques on. It's, it is a shame, like, it, you know, there were discussions with the position in Norway and here as well. Um, but they want someone to start straight away because someone is retired, so they need someone to take up the teaching. Mm -hmm. So I obviously understand that they can't wait for me for a year and a half. <laughs> um, and yeah, especially, you know, the ones from Australian Research Council, you can move it, I think, in between Australian universities, but you can't take it overseas, No. which, which is a shame. But yeah, yeah. how the system works, I suppose, <laughs> which is maybe not great. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, you have to be selfish, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and two, what's good for you. Yes. I guess the big question too, if you're going to be teaching, do, do they teach in English? So <laughs> I asked this question at the interview and they all sort of looked at each other and were like, technically you're supposed to teach in Norwegian, but because everyone in Norway grows up speaking English, um, I can teach in English, but I am I am going to be put into Norwegian classes for right. the next two years, yeah. um, university level courses. So um, I'll need to be quite proficient by the end of it. Um, but yeah, I'll see how I go with that. <laughs> it will definitely be English to start with. Yeah. <laughs> well, if I'm ever in Norway, I'll drop in and see how your Norwegian's going. Yes, of course. <laughs> But we should probably wrap things up, yep. sh and I should let you to go back and pack your suitcases. <laughs> but if people want to find out more about your research, you're on Twitter? I am, yes. I've been a bit inactive lately, but I'm hoping to um, become more active once <laughs> I move to Norway. <laughs> <laughs> That's just at Claire Stolsky, C-L-A-R-E-S-T-A-W-S-K-I. And if you want to check out more stuff for NC3 Science, we're on Twitter at NC3 Science, or the website is nc3science.com. We're on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, all sorts of stuff. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Claire. Thank you for having me again. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye.